to Galatians chapter 3 as you're finding uh, your place in Galatians this morning. Let me just say that it is so good to see you this morning, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we are incredibly grateful that you are with us as our guest, or if you're watching online for the first time, thank you for joining us. We'd love to know who you are. Uh, you can get connected to the life of our church by stopping by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus, or you can text the word CONNECT to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you this week. Uh, as always, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to worship the Lord through singing, through the reading of his word and serving. Uh, also, God continues to supply uh, needs for our church and beyond through giving. And so you can give online at churchonbayshore.org. Uh, you can use our text to give option or you can uh, give uh, in any of the drop boxes located throughout our campus. Let me also uh, ask those of you who are part of our church uh, to consider a serving opportunity in our children's ministry. Uh, the Lord continues to grow our church and continues to grow the number of children we have. In one of our fourth grade classes last week, we had 28 children uh, in one class. That's 28 fourth graders in one class and 24 second graders in one class. You need the Holy Spirit to move if you're in a room. Uh, or you need more people to sign up uh, to serve in children's ministry, so hopefully the Spirit is leading them to do that. I, I, so I would just encourage you, we do need weekly volunteers. We could use bi-weekly volunteers. If you are a parent here and your child participates in our children's ministry, there is an expectation that you do serve in children's ministry at least once a month, and so our children's ministry uh, leaders will be reaching out to you if you're not already doing that about serving, unless there's some health reason that prevents you uh, from being able to do that. But again, God is blessing us uh, with these children who are hearing and being reinforced with the gospel every week. And so we need to be obedient to the Lord and saying yes to him and meeting those needs. Let me also invite everyone uh, back this evening for our vision night uh, that will take place at five o'clock right here. We do this once a year where we look at how we're doing and tracking towards our long-term goals, look back on the previous year and talk about the things the Lord will be doing in the coming year. And so uh, there's just, this is an exciting season, and I would encourage you to be a part of what uh, happens tonight and hear uh, what the Lord is doing, and then join us for the reception that follows, the fellowship that follows after that. Um, additionally, uh, if you're new here, we do have our Discover Bayshore lunch today at 5 o'clock, at 5 o'clock. There's so many announcements I got to make. Right after the 11 o'clock service at 12.15 in the Fellowship Hall. So there's a free lunch. You hear the vision, meet some of our leaders, and have the opportunity to ask any questions that you might have. All right, well, as we dig into Galatians this morning, I just wanna say something. In the gospel, the promise of the gospel is that the things of God are yours in Christ Jesus. That God has promised you good things namely himself, but the things that come along with him in your life. They are yours if you are a child of God. And we often see the fruit of that in people who gather together to accomplish the will of the Lord together in what we would call the local church. And as we as a church continue to experience his goodness, we want to maintain our focus being on Christ. We want to keep the purpose Central. We want the gospel to be central. And that is indeed the theme of what we're seeing in Galatians chapter 3. And so I'm just going to start going through Galatians uh, chapter 3. So let me read verse 1. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. We're gonna pause there. So after clarifying that he has fought to keep the gospel central, Paul asked the Galatians a series of very pointed questions. And he does so by opening with a drastic statement. Oh, foolish Galatians, which means what you think it means. He's using this to get their attention. Why is he saying this? Well, because someone has deceived them. He says, who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is serious. This is not, you know, a charming 1960s sitcom kind of bewitching. He's talking about a dangerous deception. Deception from what? Well, he states the basic truth that has captured the Galatians. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, they didn't see him crucified, actually. They heard the gospel proclaimed, and they responded. They realized that they sin, and they fall short of the glory of God, the holiness of God, and there's nothing they can do to to make themselves right with God, and yet God has sacrificed Christ. He has become a propitiation for their sins. He has made them right with God. And he has demonstrated his authority over sin and death in the resurrection of Christ. And so they believe and they want to live for him. And as they hear Paul's appeal to their foundation, I think we need to establish this foundation again. Christianity is not about dependence on a life philosophy, moral code, or system of best practices. It is about depending on Jesus. Christianity is not about dependence on a life philosophy, moral code, or system of best practices, is it is about depending on Jesus. It's not a way of life that makes us better. It's not a code that we live by that makes us right. It's not the best practices to live our life right. Christianity is about Jesus, and it's about depending on him. And within the framework of what is called the church, you will see all kinds of things emphasized. And while I'm not saying that those things might not be a part of our walk with Christ, our walk with Christ is about our need for Christ. It's about Jesus. And so Paul says, you have heard the gospel and you have believed it. And now something is off. Verse two, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith? Now this is a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer here, based on what Paul's saying and what Paul says elsewhere, is by hearing with faith. He says, you were searching for meaning and truth, and then you heard someone proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit did a work in your heart. You found yourselves as helpless as a little child, yet utterly secure in the love of Jesus. He came to you in his word. The word produced faith. And the old self of rebellion died and the spirit of Christ has taken up residence in your heart. And Paul is gonna focus much on the work of the spirit for the rest of this letter. He says you did not get the spirit, you did not become Christians by working for God. You received the spirit when God worked for God. You. Becoming a Christian means receiving the Spirit of Christ. Paul assumes in this verse that all Christians have received the Spirit. 
Romans 8 verse 9 makes this crystal clear. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Therefore, it is impossible to think of Christianity simply in terms of a change of beliefs or values and a change of status before God. It is a transformative work. The transformative work, however, is because of the power of the gospel. It's because of the depth of the gospel. It's because of the spirit of God being at work in the life of the believer, not according to the works of the flesh. But that's becoming the focus in Galatia. Verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he says, you believe the gospel. You believe in the good news that Jesus Christ came. He made a way for us to be righteous. He saved you. You were helpless without him. Now you can walk with God. So you believe the gospel. But now you're saying, I can be right where I need to be in Christ if I dress right. If I listen to the right kind of music. If I find the church that gives me the right kind of feels during the music. If I learn how to articulate and defend my theological and cultural views, if I can make it pretty far in some programs that are handed out to me. You see, this happens when we aren't getting where we want to be or we aren't getting there as fast as we want to be there. We want to progress in the faith, that's okay. But sometimes we don't see that happening or we don't see that happening very quickly. Understand this, Christian. God is changing who we are. God is changing us. But what the gospel is doing in us is it's taking up residence in our heart. And it's changing who we are. It is changing our identity. It is producing character, Romans chapter 5 says in us. It is not just changing behavior. If we only focus on behavior... We, were, we will never deal with the root of the issues of the heart. If you've been coming here for a long time, then you know an illustration I like to use for this is middle schoolers at camp. If you've ever been to middle school camp before, they're so busy with their rec time and their devotionals and their activity and playing during free time that they can't find the time to take a decent shower. <laughs> middle school boys, not middle school girls, don't get mad at me. And so what they think is an alternative solution to taking a shower and getting the stench away is spraying themselves down with Axe body spray. And so what happens is they smell like middle school boy stench and Axe body spray. I understand that we need to deal with behaviors. So sometimes when somebody's addicted to drugs, we need to help them get sober so that they can begin to think clearly. When our marriage is in such a bad spot, sometimes there's just some practical behaviors we've got to deal with so we can even begin to communicate. In parenting, you know, sometimes there's just some things we have to do to, to get our children to behave differently so that they can listen to the truth. I get it. Sometimes when that kid smells so bad, you just got to spray him down with some Axe body spray so you can sit next to him and so you can function. But if we just keep doing that and we never deal with the root of the issue, we never deal with the character, we will never really help. If we never really understand why does that person want to escape? Why is that person chasing that high? Why is that person trying to medicate with drugs or with other things? 
Why is that man tempted to continue to cheat on his wife? Why does he not love his wife more? Why are we so angry at our children? Why are we so lazy in being intentional? If we never really deal with the heart of these issues, we're never really dealing and letting the gospel do the thing that it should do. We're just focused on behavior. And we get off track when we are focused on a Christianity that does not deal with the heart, that does not deal with the root of the issues. And the way to not get off track is to remember who we are in the first place. God didn't save people who needed to behave better. God is making dead people alive. God is transforming sinners into Christ-likeness. I know I said this last week, but I think it's important to note again this week. Christianity isn't centered around improvement. It's centered around identity. Christianity isn't centered around improvement. It's centered around identity. Christianity isn't primarily focused on the avoidance of sin. It's focused on the salvation needed in the midst of sin. And the Galatians knew this, and they had given their life to this. Paul says in verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? You see, the Galatians had suffered a lot because of their belief in the gospel. So believing in Jesus wasn't making their life practically better but they were being faithful because of him who called them. So was that in vain, Paul asked? Verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, a rhetorical question. And some of you, you're looking for God to do the miraculous in your life. The financial position that you're in, you need God to work a miracle. Your marriage, God has to work a miracle. And your health, in your child's life, whatever it is that you're going through, you really need God to work a miracle. And what is often taught is do the right things and God will work in your life. But God's miracles don't happen because of our obedience. You see, that was popular in Jewish thought in the days of Jesus. Good things happen to good people. And so if there were good things happening in your life, it was because you did good things. And if there were bad things happening in your life, it was because you did bad things. That's why you're sick. Or maybe your parents did bad things. And the point of this verse is that we must go on in the Christian life in the same way we started it. And since we started by the work of the Spirit, we must go on relying on the Spirit. You see, the essence of the Galatian heresy is this. It's that you begin the Christian life by faith, and then you grow in the Christian life by works. That is by drawing on powers in yourself to make your contribution to your righteousness. So a modern form of this heresy is God helps those who help themselves. It's the idea that for God to do anything in our life, we have to do something. We have to be the ones that do the work. And God's not gonna help you if you aren't proving yourself. And we have different standards of that, right? But that's not the gospel. 
fact, I would say that's antithetical to the gospel. We need to understand Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. In John chapter 9, there's this man who's born blind, and they ask, hey, is he blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And here's what Jesus says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God says, I'm working in a way that my glory is on display. That's what salvation is. It's not us. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. And as a Christian, we don't say, yeah, that's how I'm saved. Now look at all that I'm doing for my righteousness. J.D. Greer says the gospel isn't just the diving board, it's the pool. You see, Jesus isn't just step A in Christianity. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator, the finisher, and the sustainer in life and in our life. And so it's bewildering to Paul how so many believe the gospel, and now their focus and their emphasis is on these works. And so you must be circumcised. You must do these things. And this is inconsistent with the gospel. And it's not just inconsistent with what's being taught in the New Testament. It's, what is inconsi- it's inconsistent with what God has always said. And that's why he says here in verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is brilliant. The people who are saying this are from a Jewish background. They are sons of Abraham. And so now they're saying, hey, all the people that wanna be God's people gotta do the things that we do to be saved and to be righteous. And Paul says, Abraham believed God. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, Abraham you know, is 40, he's getting to that season of his life where you're really making a name for yourself, you're establishing yourself, and God comes to him and says, leave your secure, the security of your father's land and follow me. And I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make your name great, I'm gonna bless all the nations through you. And then he keeps following God and then around you know, retirement age when Abraham's you know, getting ready to settle down and move to Florida and drive slow in front of James, God comes to Abraham and says, you're gonna have a kid. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. What we see throughout the thread of Abraham's life is this belief in God, even, even the belief that God could justify and make him right. And when, when Paul uses this language here, he's, he's referring to a ledger, a ledger that, you know, so anyone who's under the age of 35, you don't know what a checking account ledger is. Um, we have a picture here that just, it shows the things have been debited from your account and credited to your account, right? And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying there's this negative balance in your account and God credited it to you, counted it to you as righteousness. It's a debt that you could never pay back. You could never reconcile the account of what you owe a holy God. Mother Teresa could not reconcile the account 
But Abraham believed God and he paid the debt for him. He counted it to him as in righteousness. And so that's why Paul says, verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I want you to stay with me here. This is a major theme of the entire Bible. And there's been division over the teaching of Paul and the teaching of the New Testament and saying, well, they began to teach something that was different than what God had already said. But Paul is not distorting the Old Testament when he teaches that Gentiles can be sons of Abraham. Abraham's children have always included more than the Jews. They can include you and me. See Romans chapter four, verse 16 and 17 to confirm that Genesis chapter 17, verse four lies behind Paul's thinking about the Gentiles. And Genesis chapter 18, verse 18 says the same thing and it uses the word nations, a word that could be translated as Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. This is the text Paul quotes in verse eight when he says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Some have tried to say nations refers to, in the Old Testament, the Ishmaelites and Edomites who can trace their physical descent to Abraham. But surely the word multitude that's found in Genesis 17 means more than two. God has in view the same nations that will be blessed in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, and in chapter 18, verse 18. All the families, the nations of the earth. In other words, Genesis chapter 17, verse four, explains how the nations, Genesis chapter 12, verse three and 18 are going to be blessed. They're going to be blessed because Abraham will become their father. They're going to be blessed, all the nations, by becoming sons of Abraham. What is the criteria for becoming a son of Abraham? It's those of the faith. The promise of God is for those who have faith in him. The promise of God is for those who have faith in God, those who believe. The promise of God is for those who have faith in him, not for those who have the right background, not for those who make up for their wrongs with some rights, not for those who have Bible knowledge, not for those who have membership in the right church, not for those who serve their country, not for those who try to do some good in the community, not for those who accept other people. And as I dialogue with other people, I notice things like these are the basis for people thinking they get the promise of God for their claim to righteous. And any claim of righteousness based on something other than what God says is self-righteousness. So any basis for our righteousness that 
is not what God says makes us right. It's just our own claim of righteousness. It's self-righteousness. In John chapter 8, verse 39, the Jews defend themselves against Jesus' criticism by saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them, I know your heritage, but if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. Jesus shows us two things. First, he shows us they are not Abraham's children, even though they thought they were. And so he confirms our first point, that being a child of Abraham is not the same as being Jewish. The second thing he shows us is that being a child of Abraham means being like Abraham and doing what Abraham does. What Abraham did, that the scripture commends us and exhorts us to do, is believes God. And it was counted to him, or reckoned to him, as righteousness. And so Paul infers from this in verse seven, it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who received the promise of God. Abraham was a man of faith, so if you do what he did, you will have faith and you will be his child. And Paul says that was the gospel preached beforehand knowing what God would do to justify the Gentiles. It's the same gospel. And this idea that, okay, so Abraham's our example. And Abraham had it together And so in the same way we should have it together is a distorted view of what the Bible actually teaches us and shows us. Because if you read the Bible, it is obvious that Abraham should be labeled more as a God follower than a rule keeper. If you read the account of Abraham, you don't see this man who he had it all together, and he got to level 10 Christianity, and so he's our example. And that's why Paul's saying, hey, here's how Abraham is your example. He believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is not the hero when you read that story. Noah is not the hero when you read that story. Moses is not the hero when you read that story. The Israelites are not the hero and the nation that we should say we wanna just be like. Peter is not the hero. Even Paul isn't the hero. When you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you walk away with. There is one hero and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one who deserves glory. There is only one who deserves praise. And the only exhortation and example that these others are giving us is that they believed God and God counted it to them as righteousness. And how we begin to teach these moralistic hero narrative stories in children's ministry and things like that is an absolute departure from what the Bible really shows us. And it's what leads us to reliance on the works of the law. And we might make this spiritual, right? But it is what it is. And so Paul says this, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Here again, he's contrasting a life in faith and a life in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 27 is listing off all these curses. And one of them, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. 
And all the people shall say, amen. I'm like, whoa, whoa, amen. <laughs> None of us could do them. And so those who are fo focused on the law, if they're really focused on the law, they'll find out, I can't keep the law. It's obvious that we don't keep the law. Look, we may not know a lot of the law, but most of us know the 10 commandments, and we don't even keep those 10 commandments. And so if you can't keep the 10 commandments, I assure you that you have, you have eaten shellfish on the wrong day. And then Jesus says, even if you've thought it in your heart, you've sinned against God. The works of the law in verse 10 does not refer to obedience, which comes from faith, but to our self-reliant efforts at obedience, which are really the opposite of faith. That's why works of the law are contrasted with faith. Does he who supplies the spirit to you, verse five says, and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Works of the law are not the good works that Christians do in response to the gospel and reliance on power of the Holy Spirit. They're self-reliant efforts to demonstrate or prove to ourselves and to others and maybe to God that we can do this. And the law actually condemns any attempt to live like this. And it says we are cursed. But then why, as we continue in this series, do so many people drift away from this into relying on moralism, relying on spiritualism, relying on intellectualism, relying on pragmatism? It's because of that hero thing. You see, pride is the enemy of spiritual growth. Pride is the enemy of spiritual growth. It's our desire to get credit. It's our desire to get the glory. It's our desire to feel validated in who we are, to prove our worth. And what we begin to do is we begin to compare ourselves to the wrong standards. It used to be the case, it's not so much anymore, that all SEC teams in college football would kind of start their season off with like a Division II team. And so they're playing against a team. They have all these scholarship players. They're playing against a team who might not even have all scholarship players. And so we, you know, as a Florida Gator fan, we looked really good in game one, which these days we don't even look that good against Division II teams, but that's another story. But, and so then you would hit the SEC schedule and it wouldn't be the same thing. So everybody thought their team could win the national championship after year one, but they're comparing themselves to the wrong standard. And I feel like that's kind of what happens in Christianity where pride comes in is we begin to look down upon those who might be of a different style of church or a different way of righteousness or people who come from a different background and we're not looking at ourselves in view of God. And reliance on the law or some standard or version of the law for righteousness is not in line with what God says to live by, which is faith. Verse 12 says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's referring to the law as a means of righteousness. And Scott McKnight says the law demands performance. And Paul references Leviticus 18 verse 5 saying the one who does them shall live by them. So we either live through faith or we live through the law. And if we live through the law, it's a curse. Those who do not have faith in Christ are under the earthly curse and eternal curse of the law. Those who are placing their hope in righteousness apart from Christ are under an earthly curse, an eternal curse. I mean, we see this earthly curse in people not being right with God and struggling because they're not 
right with God. And, and I, I, I could say a bunch of different things, but most importantly is there's the absence of the Holy Spirit and the, the comfort and the peace and the challenge and the conviction and the courage the Holy Spirit gives people. But also they're under an eternal curse. George MacDonald said the one conviction that is shared in hell is I am my own. I belong to myself. I can do what I want to do, and I trust in myself. And the decision of curse or blessing hangs on how you obey and who gets the credit. Is your obedience a response to what God has given you or a belief that I can earn the things of God? And is your life giving praise to the one who is worthy of it all or trying to prove your worth? And saving, faith is, saving faith is wholly focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, verse 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says, you are cursed according to the law and Christ on the cross takes that curse on and he gives you his spirit to walk in him, not only to be delivered from the curse, but to experience the promise, earthly and eternal of God. This is not a promise that you're given through some prescription of spiritualism, like we heard in Tara's testimony last week, or moralism, or intellectualism, or ritualism. It's a promise because of the power of the gospel, because of the work of the Spirit in our life. This is where we stay and how we grow. We don't leave that. So I just, in an application, I just want to give you three quick things so you know what to do with this. Number one, if you are prone to wander, have people around you who quickly get your focus back on Christ. If you're prone to wander from dependence on the gospel and Christ and finding your identity in Christ and progressing in Christ, have people around you. Do you want to know if you are prone to wander? Are you breathing? Okay, you're prone to wander. And so you need people. This is why we emphasize life groups. This is why we emphasize biblical community. And we don't just want classes where there's a lecture. We want you to be around people who get to, to help you discern your heart. And are constantly pointing you back to your worth in Christ and responding with your life in obedience to him. As, again, a response, not something we earn. The second thing I would say is if someone is drowning, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim. If someone is drowning, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim. They don't need a bunch of rules. Now, somebody might say, are you saying that they don't need to be in the Bible? No, that's actually the opposite of what I'm saying. They need to understand what the Bible is. The Bible is centered around the gospel. The Bible is pointing us to the depth of the gospel and how we respond to the gospel. And so if someone is drowning, they need to be delivered. They need to be saved. And really only 
the Spirit can do that. And so they need to depend utterly on Christ. And you might need to walk with them through what, how they're drowning to see that. Lastly, if you want to live your life in and for the promises of God, stop trying to get the credit. If you really want to live your life for the glory of God, stop making it about you and your need to get patted on the back and your need for affirmation and you feeling good about yourself and back like when you were a first Christian, first became a Christian, and you realized, I need Jesus. I need righteousness. You utterly depend on him every day. Martin Luther said, to progress in the faith is to begin again. As a Christian, it's really a constant beginning again. C.S. Lewis would say, sometimes to take the step forward, we have to go and we have to take those steps back to then head in the direction that we need to head. But what you need to understand is that this in Christ is what's been promised to you, the blessings of God on earth and eternal. And it's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to have some recipe for figuring it out. It's just what God wants to do for you. In James, the book of James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives generously to all and without finding fault, and it will be given to you, that you are his child. And so, so I just wanna quickly explain how we get off track here and how we've gotten off track in church history and where to go from here. And I'll start with Golden Corral. So today's my son Nathan's birthday, and what he wanted to do, we've never been to Golden Corral. What he wanted to do for his birthday was go to Golden Corral, and I hadn't been there in 20 years. And um, this is Niceville. Some of you are kind of bougie, so I need to explain what Golden Corral is. Um, it's a buffet. You pay like, you know, 10 to 15 bucks and you go in and you can have all the food you want. They have steak. They have Mexican food, not made by Mexican people. They have a salad bar. They have all kinds of stuff. And we can debate the quality of that food, but it is what it is. And so you, you pay or someone pays for you, right? If you're my child, someone pays for you and you go in. And so I was thinking this morning, like what happens in Christianity, it's kind of like this. Like if I paid for my child to go in and they could receive all the blessings of Golden Corral they wanted to receive, right? I know the sermon breaks down because God's blessings are better than three dinner rolls. But anyway. <laughs> and then they go up to this person who's serving food and they're like, okay, um, what do I need to give you? And they're like, okay, here's a couple bucks, you know? And they're like, no, 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 it's paid for. And they're like, no, no, I insist. And the person's like, well, shoot, I'm, I'll take a couple bucks, right? Like, and then, you know, people begin to go to that guy and, you know, hey, you give him a couple bucks. And, and then we feel good, right? Like we contributed something to this. Well, some people are like, well, I don't have money and that guy wants money. And so I'll go over to this station over here and, you know, I can dance and our personalities are more energetic than the ones that have money at that group over there. And so over here, we'll dance. And then over here, you know, we don't really like dancing and we also don't have money, but we're pretty smart. And so over here, what if we like just impress people with some kind of joke or some kind of story? And so now we're getting food here. And now the people at these stations are like, you know, this feels pretty good. I kind of have a following. <laughs> 
And so then all these other, you know, children start to come in. And so just imagine that the whole restaurant's filled with my children. I have a lot of kids, but not that many kids. But let's just imagine that, right? And so they come in and they're like, okay, what do I need to do to get the food? And like, come over here. You gotta pay and then they'll give you food. And they come over here and you dance. And so everybody just kind of starts to pick all this. And then as the dad, I walk in. I know this is silly. As the dad, I walk in and I'm like, what are y'all doing? Well, in order to have this, we have to pay. In order to have this, we have to act like this. In order to have this, we have to have these personalities and this style. And I'm like, I paid for all of you. This is yours. You don't need to do any of these things. Christian, maybe because you didn't have a father that loved you unconditionally on earth, Maybe because of marriage, you weren't shown your value. Maybe because some wacky preacher told you something other because it makes them feel good that you stay at their station. You're confused. But here's what you need to know. The promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. You don't have to figure out some kind of formula of religion to receive the promises of God. You just need to understand that he has paid it all for you and utterly depend on him and give him the glory that he deserves. That's what God wants to give you in your life. And I hope that you experience the freedom that comes from being his child. And I hope today you realize what you need to move forward is just to begin again. It's just to depend on him for the righteousness that saved you, the righteousness that sustained you, and the righteousness that will complete his work in you. Let's pray together. Jesus, to you be all the glory. And so our need right now while you might use people, you might use churches, you might use programs, you might use all kinds of things. It is our Father who freely gives us all things. May we desperately depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen.